try to do this morning just to begin, and we're going to have a little bit of an extended introduction before I read the text uh, relative to how we normally do things, because we're beginning a new series this morning, and it's going to come from the book of Acts. And there's a few things that I think are important for us to understand about the book of Acts uh, before we read the text that we're going to look at today in Acts, and then before this 12-week study begins throughout the fall. Uh, So the book of Acts is really just a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts. It's really one story in two parts. Historically, during their time, uh, these uh, scripture writers often wrote on papyrus scrolls, sometimes uh, being rolled up and, and spread out in length of 35 feet, which is long in and of itself, and so some believe that, for example, Luke wrote this story in two parts simply because he ran out of room, and because the scroll was not 70 feet, it was 35 feet. Of course, we don't know this specifically and technically, just generally, we do know these were how things were written during that time, but it's important for us to remember as we turn this page from part one to part two, clearly Luke is an eyewitness, Luke that is the gospel, is an eyewitness account, a biography of Jesus if you will, and the book of Acts has often been referred to as the history of the early or New Testament church, but it's important for us to understand that the book of Acts is not simply a historical book, but it's a continuation of the work of Christ through the power of the Spirit. It's a continuation of the gospel in the kingdom. In fact, many scholars and commentators would say that the book would more aptly be named the Acts of the Apostles, which begs the question, referring back to this idea of being tribalistic and using terminology that definitely people outside the church don't understand, and the church has such a problem that people inside the church oftentimes don't even understand terminology, and people like me, that is, preachers, are often to blame. So when we think about this idea of the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles, it might be important for us to understand what an apostle is because the book of Acts talks a lot about them, and we will be studying them for the next 12 weeks here on Sunday morning. And so an apostle simply means one who is sent, an ambassador, a delegate. That's the general term, but a biblical apostle or an apostle as they're referred to in Scripture are people that saw Christ, all right? So generally, an apostle is one who is sent, an ambassador, Specifically, biblically, an apostle as one, is one who saw Christ or saw the risen Christ. The New Testament tells us, in fact, in 1 Corinthians and then also in Acts, that Paul was the last apostle. And that, for example, James, the brother of Jesus, when he passed on, he was not replaced, seemingly signifying that the apostolic age ended upon the death of these men that came into eyewitness, real-life contact with Jesus. And the book of Acts is about their story. The book of Acts is about the story of the gospel. The book of Acts is about the movement and the progress of the kingdom from a small group of people in a small geographic place to a massive expansion throughout the world. With this being said, I want to read to you a quote that I just candidly debated on reading or not. It's a lengthier paragraph, and it 
might sound a little scholarly, but we're going to do it anyway. And I'm going to let this lead us towards our passage. But I think if you can follow this, which I think you can, uh, you'll find it fascinating. This is by a scholar named Larry Hurtado. And Larry Hurtado uh, has written extensively on the first century, or first century Christianity. And in fact, he wrote one book entitled, Why on Earth Did Anyone in the First Three Centuries Become a Christian? Why on Earth Did Anyone in the first three centuries, become a Christian. This will not be the last time in this series that you hear from Larry Hurtado. He says this, about 300, I'm sorry, about 30 AD, a new religious movement appeared, initially comprised of circles of Jews in Roman Judea, in which Jesus was central to its beliefs and practices. At some point thereafter, but certainly In the latter part of the first century AD, adherents to this particular movement began to be referred to as Christians, initially by outsiders. And by the second century, the movement became known as Christianity. During his early life, Jesus had become master to a group of followers, and likely they saw him as Messiah. Shortly after Jesus' state execution by crucifixion, there erupted among his followers the powerful conviction that God had raised him from death and exalted him to heavenly glory, thereby designating Jesus Jesus as Messiah and Lord. This conviction produced an even new and greater fervency among the circles of Jesus' followers. And within a couple years, at most, the movement had spread to other sites as well. Within a decade or two, it had spread to a number of cities in present-day Turkey and Greece, also to Rome, and likely to other places such as Egypt. Initially made up of Jews, the movement quickly expanded trans-ethnically to include non-Jews, Gentile converts, that is, former pagans, even people in 2018 in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's who we are. That's where this came from, and that's what this book is about. Acts 1 is the text that we're going to look at this morning, and I want to do something that I haven't done before, which is I want to break up the text, the reading of the text, because I want to read the first half of Acts 1, which is in your bulletin, and then I really want to focus on, and the rest of the sermon will be on Acts 6 through 8, but I want to read verses 1 through 5 and make one last point of introduction this morning for us, and then I'm actually just going to have you stand, as we typically do, for the reading of 6 through 11. But just listen to 1 through 5. Don't stand yet. In the first book, O Theophilus, there's a lot of mystery about who Theophilus was. Luke wrote His gospel to Theophilus as well. Some people think he was a Roman uh, citizen or a Roman officer who potentially funded the writing uh, of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But it's important what Luke says here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And this is what the main thing I want you to see. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many 
proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The beginning of Acts is very similar to the beginning of Luke. In Luke 1, the same writer writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, Luke writes, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. Luke goes to painstaking measures, and he uses words very precisely for them and therefore for us to know this. This is true. This is accurate. This was testified by eyewitnesses through many proofs. Even to this day in 2018, Jesus' body has never been produced by anyone. Even to this day, what we know, regardless of whether you believe it or not, and we could talk more in depth about this later, the Bible is the most well-attested document in the history of the world. And nothing objectively comes close. And Luke wants us to know that he's proven it and that it's true. And as a result of that, it's authoritative. And if none of that were true, then you shouldn't be here. Stand with me as we read this last section of Acts 1 this morning after an elongated introduction. Thank you for your patience. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will at this time, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to, him, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud and took out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As far as I can tell, nobody likes evangelism, especially the word in and of itself. But regardless of what your concept is or your aversion to the idea of evangelism, it occurs to me as well that everybody is evangelistic about something. No one wants to be proselytized, yet we all seem bent on making disciples, right? 
Now, it might not be so much religiously, and it might not be so intentionally, but the truth is we can't get around it. Many of you are evangelistic about your workout. Others of you are seeking to make disciples of your diet. We all, to one degree or another, are evangelistic about new trends or sales or other aspects of life and culture together. We come across a good restaurant, and guess what? We become evangelistic. We are seeking to make disciples. We discover a new beautiful part of the country, and we become evangelistic. We want to proselytize people in order to make disciples so they can enjoy what we enjoy. We do this almost inherently without thinking, something that I have become evangelistic about increasingly in the last year or so is the band of the Abbott Brothers. I've always liked them, uh, but more and more recently, the more I get to know them, the more I'm moving into a love for them. had an opportunity this summer to see them live uh, after a Braves game in Atlanta, and they were fantastic. It was an incredible show um, on many levels, full band, uh, very fun, and at one point, I had the privilege not only of witnessing and seeing them, but one of the Avett brothers, Seth Avett, came down from the stage, and I'm on the front row of Brave Stadium, and he kind of climbs up on the wall, you know, that separates the seats from the field, and he's singing in this song, walking along the wall, kind of like a catwalk or whatever, and I grabbed his calf, and <laughs> I, was, I was just excited, uh, and he was there, and I was there, and Uh, And then I came home from that and I witnessed more about my love for the Avett brothers and and told people that I saw them and touched them, or him, Seth, that is, my new friend, Seth Avett. And then, interestingly enough, over this last summer, something that has grown in popularity among this band is this fantastic HBO documentary, and I understand that not all of you even know who I'm talking about, but what I'm doing right now is evangelizing about the Abbott brothers. There's a documentary by HBO Films on them that is absolutely fantastic. It's fantastic biographically. It's fantastic musically. It's just a great thing to watch, to warm your heart, and to expand your mind. And it's hard for me to stop talking about it. You see, we tend to talk about things that have impacted us. We talk about things that have moved us. When we have been transformed, we become compelled and then therefore commissioned to share. Well, that's exactly what's going on around 33 AD in a small corner and pocket of Jerusalem. There's a group of people that have had their lives absolutely turned upside down and transformed. They have come into contact and know this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and now they are compelled and they are commissioned to be His witnesses. And that's what I want us to delve into a little more in depth this morning. While I gave you a longer introduction, I'll give you a shorter uh, body of the sermon. The things that I want us to see this morning, primarily in an overarching way, is that we are compelled and commissioned to be witnesses. If you are a follower of Christ, you are compelled and commissioned to be a witness of Christ and to advance the kingdom. 
We're going to look at this in two more in-depth ways. If we want to understand more clearly what it means to be compelled and commissioned to be a witness as a follower of Christ and to advance the kingdom, we've got to understand what the kingdom is, and we also have to understand what it means to be a witness. So let's first look at what the kingdom is, and the way in which we can see what the kingdom is, is first by looking at what the kingdom is not. And the reason that I want to do this is because we see it in our text from the disciples yet again, which makes us feel better about ourselves, at least misery enjoying company. Here, after the resurrection, they still didn't get it. If you've ever read the Gospels before, if you've ever read these eyewitness biographical accounts of Jesus, one of the things that is abundantly clear and even surprisingly, shockingly uh, clear is that those who were Christ's followers and his disciples continually were confused about who Christ was and what it meant to follow him. Things became more clear um, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, but things at this point still were cloudy for them, evidenced by their misunderstanding of what the kingdom is. You see, you can't actually be an effective witness for the kingdom unless you understand what the kingdom is. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 6. So when they, that is, these followers of Jesus, had come together, they asked him, and it's important for us to think about the words in this uh, phrase or sentence, as scholars have said, essentially every aspect of this sentence is wrong. Uh, Lord, will you at this time, like right now, restore the kingdom to Israel? See, their understanding of the kingdom was inaccurate because they thought that the kingdom of God was earthly. They thought the kingdom of God was geographic. They thought the kingdom of God was localized. They thought the kingdom of God was nationalistic. They thought the kingdom of God was exclusive. They thought the kingdom of God was political. And they thought the kingdom of God was immediate. And guess what? It's none of those things. And unfortunately, despite what Christians and disciples and followers of Jesus even here today still promote. It's not these things. The kingdom of God is not ultimately earthly. The kingdom of God is definitely not geographical. The kingdom of God is not nationalistic. The kingdom of God is not exclusive. The kingdom of God is not political. And the kingdom of God is not immediate. It's understandable that they and even we would want it to be all these things because all of those things would be really convenient for us individually. But the gospel is communal. It's not individual. And if we're going to be witnesses to Christ and witnesses to the resurrection, and if we're going to compel and commission others to follow Christ, we must understand what the kingdom actually is. The kingdom actually is spiritual. John Stott says, The kingdom of God is His rule set up in the lives of His people by the Holy Spirit. Another person says, God's, The kingdom is God's people in God's place 
under God's rule and blessing. The kingdom is God's people in God's place, which is everywhere, under God's rule and blessing. It's what we say in the Lord's Prayer. That gives us an indication of what the kingdom is. Have you ever thought about it before as you've said it? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is the way things are supposed to be on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom ultimately is a spiritual reality. The kingdom ultimately is a multi-ethnic reality. We'll talk about this a little bit more in just a minute, but Acts 1 chapter 8 specifically and strategically gives geographical references. It says, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Think about this in a concentric circle sort of way. Go be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then just to the ends of the earth. I don't know. America. The kingdom is spiritual, and the kingdom is multi-ethnic. The kingdom is also gradual, and then the kingdom is eternal. It's important for us to understand if we're going to promote this message of the kingdom that it's not geographical, it's not earthly, it's not immediate, it's not political. It is spiritual, it is multi-ethnic, and it is gradual and ultimately eternal. So that's what the kingdom is. Secondly, let's look and spend a little more time of what it means to be a witness for the kingdom. Because verse 8 really is the central point of our reflection this morning. Jesus says, when they ask him, hey, would you, you know, kind of deliver the kingdom to us? You know, like our people, you know, like this nationalistic idea. Would you basically make our lives better? You know, everything kind of work out in the way we want it to work out with, you know, PLUs, people like us. Would you, Jesus, would you kind of orchestrate that? I know you've kind of done a lot in your life and you didn't sin and then you died on the cross. I bet that was pretty terrible. And now you've been resurrected. But now, you know, it's kind of like about me. And it's about us. And like, can you kind of, you know, put us in places of power and help us build our own tribe? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. However, I will do this. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you power that's actually unstoppable. I'm going to give you fervency that's not rooted in your own passion, but that's rooted in my passion. And this power and this fervency are going to change the world. And so here's what I will give you. The call and the commission to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Greek word for the word or the English word witness is martus, simply meaning a martyr. That's interesting. So if we're going to be a witness of the kingdom, we must understand first what a witness is. Well, literally, a witness is a martyr who testifies to what they have seen and what they have heard, no matter the cost. A witness is a martyr who's willing to testify to what they've seen and what they've heard 
It's similar to the story in Mark chapter 5 with the Gerasene demoniac where Christ comes in and delivers in a pretty sensational and fantastic way this man who has been possessed with demons. Jesus heals him, dresses him in his right mind, and this man, of course, then wants to get out of where he is and go follow Jesus. And instead, Jesus says, no, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to stay here and tell others about what the Lord has done for you. That's what it is to be a witness. Simply telling others about what the Lord has done for you. John Newton, the historic hymn writer and British slave trader, understood this. When he writes in the historic hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. That's it. That's what it means to be a witness. This is what the Lord has done for me. I once was blind, but now I see. And I'm testifying to this reality in my life. So a witness is a martyr who testifies to what they've seen and what they've heard, and to what Christ has done in us. But let's delve a little bit more into this idea of being a witness and answer the question, why? Why do we witness? In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are taken in by the authorities, and we'll look at this story in greater depth in a few weeks. But they put them in prison because they're preaching the gospel, and the gospel at this point is contagious. It's going viral in the Roman officials and others don't know what to do about it, and so they just put them in prison, and then they talk about it, and then they bring them out, and they think, what are we going to do with these people? And they're like, here's what we'll do. We can't really arrest them. There's no legitimate charges. However, what we can do is tell them just to be quiet. And so they said, look, we're not going to keep you in jail. Nothing else is going to happen to you. Just one thing. We just need you to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter responds by saying, we can't help but to speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. That's why we witness, because we can't help it. We can't help to talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. We are compelled to do so. Thirdly, let's entertain this question of where we witness. So a witness is a martyr who shares a testimony about who they are. We do this, why? Because we can't help it. Because Christ has been a witness to us. Because Christ has come to us. Because Christ has loved us. We are called to love Him. We are motivated, not out of guilt, not ultimately out of duty, though there is a responsibility that followers of Jesus do have to witness. But the primary motivating factor is love. First and foremost, Christ's love for you. And then secondly, your love for others. That's why you witness. But then the question that I want to spend a little bit more time on is this idea of where we are to witness. And I already made mention that there's geographical references. And you don't have to know your geography historically in the first century too well to understand this idea of moving from near to far. Christ wants His ambassadors to go out first to those among them. I don't know. In their households. In their neighborhoods in their schools, in places they frequent every day like work. I know it might not be as sensational just to live as a faithful presence in your everyday life, and I know the people that you interact with on an everyday basis know you better than anybody else, so boy, it's a lot easier to go do a mission trip to people that don't know you, right? I can remember talking to a student when I was working 
on campus as a campus minister, and he had just finished working with a local high school ministry and had kind of done his, uh, you know, um, had fulfilled his commitment there and was going to take his senior year at this point, you know, to just kind of have more time and not work with that ministry anymore. And then as he was telling me about that and telling me about the decision, he just said, but if I'm not doing that, and what that meant was, if I'm not going to a local high school lunch and, you know, building relationship with kids, or if I'm not going to a high school football game on Friday, if I'm not doing that, I just don't know how I will minister. And I said, I don't know, Joseph, maybe you could talk to people in your hallway, like that, you know, you live with, like in the dorm. And it was the first time he thought, oh, yeah, like, that's kind of my Jerusalem. While it might be more sensational and easier and, I don't know, compelling on some reason to go witness somewhere, we need to begin by witnessing where we already are in Jerusalem, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities. And we'll talk about how we do this last, but that's where we do it. We begin with where we are, and we do move out from there. There is a sense where mission is mobile, and that's important. And it moves beyond not only geographically, but even more importantly, it moves beyond our circles of preference. It moves beyond our nationalistic circles. It moves beyond our ethnic Circles, it moves beyond our socioeconomic circles. Guess what? The gospel even moves beyond our political circles. Jesus, by no means, could be allied with any political party of his day and absolutely not of our day. And we've got to realize this that the message of the kingdom and what we are to witness about is universal and it's global, it's not tribalistic, it's not nationalistic, it's multi-ethnic. I can remember hearing two foreign missionaries share years ago, their, their names were Judy Jacobson and Jill Howard, and these were two women that really did kind of your stereotypical take the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, kind of thing, and they were, they were fantastic. And, and the way that they did this primarily was through teaching English. And I'm not talking about, you know, in some kind of small individual tutoring kind of way. We're talking like writing textbooks for English in places like Mongolia and Tibet. And I can remember reading and thankfully found one of their old newsletters from Tibet. And I want you to read what they reported in the name of where we witness that will lead us into how we witness, which is our last reflection for the day. They write, imagine Christians in the city where the Dalai Lama is worshipped as king. Madeleine Albright would be proud. We were very diplomatic. The way was made straight. They're in Tibet, by the way. Imagine our surprise. The communist officials were actually our old friends. We negotiated for, quote, Camp Tibet, which is a camp they would establish to teach English, and it just so happened that the English that they were going to teach was rooted in Scripture. And accepted invitations to teach in the capital city this summer. We never really know how God will provide opportunities for us. Really, 
we just show up. Please pray for our work this semester for, first of all, writing the super science lesson book, and number two, preparing to train 300 eager ELIC teachers. Judith made the headlines while we were in Tibet. She got bucked off a pesky yak in the yak race and went down on her elbows, broke both arms, and one fell swoop. Neither rain, nor snow, nor sleet, nor hail, nor gloom of night, nor plaster cast shall keep us from our duties. Sincerely, your favorite professors in Tibet. It's amazing. That's where we go. Why? Because Isaiah 49, God says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you instead as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the very ends of the earth. That's where we witness. So we've looked at what a witness is, why we witness, where, and then lastly, how in the world do we do this? How do we witness? And I think this is where it gets complicated for people, and this is where duty and guilt and bad experiences easily arise, and that's understandable. In fact, I had an experience um, just this past week, as I was thinking about this, I was running at Lakeshore Park, and as I was running around the path at the latter part of my run on a hot day, and there's some hills there, and I was you know, feeling pretty good about what I was doing, but also ready to get finished, and I was by myself. Um, a slew of guys come together that apparently are part um, of a workout tribe uh, in uh, this particular locale, and they come, and they kind of are about, I don't know, 100 yards before me, and um, all of a sudden, they are on the pavement, and they start doing like, they're not wearing shirts, and they start doing like sit-ups and push-ups like on the path. And I kind of think, oh, well, that's interesting, and I think that would probably hurt my back to, you know, do a sit-up on the concrete. Um, and, but then they're kind of spewed out along there, and then as I'm getting closer, more of them start to come, and then I end up making eye contact, eye contact with one of them. And at this point, I just know. Like, you just know he's getting ready to say something to me about what they're doing And what he says is, hey, come join us. And my immediate thought was, you're crazy. Like, I'm in the middle, no thanks, I'm like in the middle of my own workout. It's just fine. Like, I'm running hard. Like, I'm doing great. I don't need to be doing sit-ups on the pavement with you. People, I don't know. Like, I, why? Why? Would I just want to stop my workout, stop what I'm doing, and join you in doing something I don't want to do? And I thought, man, that's how a lot of people, I think, think what it means to witness. And that's how a lot of people feel about being witnessed to. Now, that's the critique. The positive is, I appreciate the guy's passion. I mean, really, like he loved what they were doing. He was all into it. He wanted other people to get it. So I applaud his passion. I'm critical of the technique. And so it is important for us to learn how to actually witness. And this by no means will be exhausted, but I want to give you a couple thoughts. The first way in which I would recommend us, and these things would be embodied here in this church. And so this would be a good litmus for like who we are. Number one, we are definitely missional. I promise you that. But the way that witnessing begins 
is a faithful presence. Did you catch in Judy and Jill's newsletter when they said they just showed up? Let's begin by witnessing by just simply showing up. Another way to witness through faithful presence is to have integrity, like in your own life. Just to be honest, to be kind, to be pure. Those are good ways to witness. You know another good way to witness by faithful presence is to be a person who repents. That's a pretty compelling thing to other people. To practice not self-righteous morality, but to practice grace-filled fidelity through simply a faithful presence in your life and in this world. You know another way that we can witness? Love. Just to love God and to love others. A mentor of mine who writes and engages a lot on this subject says many wise things. One of the things, sadly, that he says, sadly only because it's true, he says, most non-Christians think Christians hate them. And I bet you know that's true. What if most non-Christians thought Christians loved them? That'd be a pretty good way to witness. I know we can get fastidious about memorizing certain canned evangelistic speeches. Arguably, we could argue over the effectiveness of that or not. But another thing we could also do is, I don't know, not gossip. Like That's probably a pretty effective means of witnessing and evangelism, just to show love and kindness. One man says it like this, the early church grew not because of the spiritual gifts of Christians, such as the gift of speaking in tongues, and not because Christianity was such a palatable doctrine. On the contrary, it's about the most unpalatable doctrine there is. But they had discovered the secret of community. Generally speaking, the early church did not have to lift a finger to evangelize. Someone would be walking down a back alley in Corinth or Ephesus and would see a group of people sitting together talking about the strangest things, something about a man and a tree and an execution and an empty tomb. What they were talking about made no sense to the onlooker. But there was something about the way these people looked at one another, about the way they cried together, the way they laughed together, that was strangely appealing. It gave off the scent of love. The onlooker would start to drift further down the alley only to be pulled back to this little group like a bee to a flower. He would listen some more, still not understanding, and start to drift away again. But again, he would be pulled back thinking, I don't have the slightest idea what these people are talking about, but whatever it is, I want part of it. Why? Because they loved each other. How do we witness? We witness simply by having a faithful presence. We witness through relationship, not relational evangelism. We just build relationships. We have a faithful presence. We love. And then the last thing I'll say, once again, not an exhaustive list, we serve. What would it be like for a church in this city to serve this city, to serve others? What would it be like for us individually in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of work, to be people who serve? It would be, I argue, transformational. The Roman Emperor Julian in AD 360 is historically and famous 
for a quote he talked about. He talked about their religion of the day was losing ground. Meanwhile, in 360, Christianity in Rome was gaining steam and passion and adherence. And Julian, the apostate was his name, the Roman emperor said, these Christians are crazy because they love and serve everyone. They not only care for their own poor, but they care for ours too. And as a result of that, it's growing. I pray that that would be us individually and collectively. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.